Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast where we discuss common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. I'm Mark. I'm Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry. And I'm Lena. Heck, <laughs> so funny over here. I don't if know. If only people knew. <laughs> this guy's just kidding. <laughs> Lena, tell them about what they got to do. Yeah, well, you guys, you got to keep those reviews coming in. We've gotten, I think we've gotten a couple since we've been asking every episode. <laughs> like, basically begging. <laughs> you know that or people got really good at that 15 second ahead button. Yeah, that's true. true. Well, let's make this a little bit longer then. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We have a show notes on the website. It's super important with our systematic theology stuff, right? Because we got lots of Bible references and links in there. Links? Well, maybe. (laughs) The links are in the other stuff. Oh, okay. Mostly just Bible verses. It's, It's a value. Well, hey. back back, uh, <laughs> back in the saddle wow, again. Here, drove yeah. that one right into the ground. Although okay, technically, um, well, yeah, no but, episodes will have been missed. I was going to say, will anyone know that we failed to record anything for a couple of weeks because of the plague? Yeah, yeah, several. The coronavirus Please. hit. No, 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 <laughs> no, no. I shouldn't even make light light of it because that's actually pretty serious stuff. But it's scary. Yeah. Yeah. And I had, a, I mean, I had a nice sunny getaway. Sunny Durham in the yeah, middle of what, February. What were you doing? Oh, yeah, our southern listeners. You, is it work? Yeah, it was like, what's that? Yeah, it was work. And you ran but into it my was mom like, in It's like airport. 75 degrees. Yeah, that was the <laughs> highlight like of our trip. The, Did you hear about that? The Raleigh-Durham what? airport. He was walking through the airport in Raleigh and ran into my mom. No. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah dude. I was running to one side to get gifts for the, for the kids, and I was going trying to go to the other side where my plane was, and all of a sudden, straight ahead of me, what do you know? It's Debbie Miller. Just straight, like, just like looking for her, looking for her flight. So, I believe the word you used was frazzled. Uh, yeah, she was. I think she was. She was a little concerned where her where her airplane was. Well, so she, did you but, help her find her? Airplane? No, I didn't. She was. I mean, they're all pretty clearly labeled right there. <laughs> he told me I had to get to Night my t-shirt. Shining armor. Yeah, no, I was actually because I had I had ordered at the restaurant. Oh my at, gosh! Uh, at, at Dale at Dale Junior's uh, Whiskey River. And uh, the cheeseburger was hot, ready for me waiting, so I had to get back to it. So well, good luck, Debbie. See ya. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> Look for somebody in a jacket and you just ask for directions. <laughs> so I was at I was heading to Cameroon and I was with a group of people in Minneapolis, and I go in the men's room, and there's Don Whitney. Oh if man, you know oh, who funny. He is. Yeah, and we were friends, and I'm. It was really awkward though because I wasn't sure it was him. Oh. And he's washing his hands, and I'm like. Looking at him. <laughs> and he kind of give, gives me this look back like, Don't what are you look looking at, at? Me. And then we both realized, hey, it is you. <laughs> so, Were you comparing pens? Actually, Found he wanted him. to look at my pen, and I had one of my fountain pens. I had a Mont Blanc with me, and he was very pleased. You don't carry pens anymore. I don't. I, you know what? No. It's yeah, not not iPad, man. I've got them. Yeah, not in the age I enjoy the them, but iPad. Anyhow, he, he called a normal ink pen an ink stick. 
an ink stick. Yeah, it's very derisive. Not worth my time. That's basically what it is. But we're going to talk about systematic theology too. What, you don't think everybody's loving this conversation? <laughs> no. <laughs> pretty sure. <laughs> All right. We um, will stop talking like this once you review. Yeah, you have to like and share. Or else. And then we will stop blathering. Yeah, well, anyhow. Uh, okay. So, yes, systematic theology too. What, what do, uh, which one are we on? Well, on the doctrine of man. And I just blanked out my screen for my notes in one second. Well, let me pick it up for you. Well, no, I'm back you actually back on, so oh, I'm good. Bam. So we talked about um, why the doctrine is very important. Um, a lot of implications uh, with our life, our culture, especially now in our nation, um, but also within the church. Uh, it's it it generates a lot of emotional debate between Christians and non-Christians, um, and now. Even within the church, there's this big debate on human sexuality right, and, right. and whatnot. Um, and so we tried to lay out why it's not just a point of intellectual discussion, but one that has consequences. And we're hoping that as we take people through all of this systematic theology, that they'll start to realize the better their theology is, the more that they'll be able to interact with their culture. Absolutely. Um, and so we began to talk about the various lexical terms, and we always do that uh, in the old and new. We're going to do it again today. Uh, but what we're going to focus on tonight is the uh, creation of man. Yeah. Or if you're driving this morning. Or this morning. Whatever. Cow. All right. It's <laughs> night here in Kenosha. True. We're not uh, full anybody. What? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the fifth time we try to do this. Like, All right. Uh, the, <laughs> well, this comes out tomorrow morning. Did you see the giant moon tonight? Yeah, oh, dude. Yeah. That was awesome. All right. My wife said it's called the winter. Never mind. I can't remember what it's called. The <laughs> snow moon or the winter moon or the the winter soul. or the wolf super moon, wolf blood moon or something. Yeah. <laughs> wolf blood super. <laughs> Maybe John Haggie has got a book on it. <laughs> Okay, uh, so the creation creation of man. Um, first of all, it's important to understand that it was a special creative act. And the definitive text for this, or the definitive passage, of course, is Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Lainey, you want to read that? Okay. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so again, the point to understand is that man is is a creation of God and therefore a creature. Um, but, but a unique one. It wasn't like he's not part of the animal kingdom. Right. So anybody who talks about mankind as an animal is already unbiblical. That's an evolutionary concept. It's it's a special creative act. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Anyhow, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so in in this passage, though, there's there's a, a few words actually that are used that are important to understand. So just quickly again, some lexical stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the first word is this word asa or asa, and it's it's used once in verse twenty six, and this is actually the term in Hebrew for for doing for actively moving. Um, and it's a very important term, and actually it has important implications for right. open theists. Um, and the reason for that is because it speaks to the fact that God's not passive, but that he's actually active in his work and in his efforts. And so he is 
clearly taking the initiative here. And so there's actually an intimacy in, in what he's doing. It's not him, you know, vaguely setting things into motion and letting yeah. them unfold as he watches. In fact, I was in the reform pub uh, and was looking at somebody asked, what's your view of creation? And I, it had like 275 comments and I was just saddened <laughs> to see the number of guys there just casually, but also with a, almost an air of arrogance, you know, taking it poetically, this or that. But how many of them saw it as a passive act that God started it, got it rolling, and then just yeah. let evolution take over? And I'm like, no, Asa, <laughs> he's actively involved in this. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the the theological workbook of the Old Testament, the TWOT. Uh, says this, it says, when used of God, and speaking of this term, Asa, when used of God, the word frequently emphasizes God's acts in the sphere of history. These contexts stress one of the most basic concepts of Old Testament theology, and that is that God is not only transcendent, but that he is also imminent in history, affecting his sovereign purposes. That's a good, that's actually a really good statement. Yeah. And then there's the word barah. Uh, it's used three times uh, in verse 27. Uh, again, another very important term, unsurprising, because these are foundational passages, because it reveals the fact that God is a creating God. In fact, it's an essential property of his. So built into the reality of what it means to be God is that he creates. That's, that's what he does. Um, and I think this gets into our earlier discussion about what is the image of God. I think that's another quality, but... We'll get to that. Um, the word, according to the theological word book of the Old Testament, the word is especially appropriate to the concept of creation by divine fiat, where you declare or state something into creation. So when you combine the word with the previous one of Asa, one of the first things we learn about God is that he is an active creator, which is cool. Yeah. Right there. That's yep. just cool. Yeah. Um, and then you have Genesis 2 and verse 7. Um this one says that then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life and man became a living being. Um, now the important word for this passage is Yasar. Um, and again, the TWOT says this, it says the basic meaning of this root is to form or to fashion. So now it's not just that he's active. It's not just that he's creator. He's actually now fashioning. Yeah. Um, and it goes on to say, well, the word occurs, um, in synonymous parallelism uh, with the term bara, which is to create, and asa, which is to make, uh, in a number of passages, its primary emphasis is on the shaping or forming of the object involved. Uh, when used in its secular sense, it occurs most frequently to speak of a potter or one who fashions mm. from clay. Right. Yeah. So, um, so the term implies creation, but also speaks then to purpose. And that's the point to understand. There is an end product or an image um, that the designer, which is God in this case, has in mind. And so there, there's actually an intentional forming or a shaping of the object that's being created. And in the context of God, of course, it's being shaped to serve his very specific purposes. And again, it speaks of that intimacy of how man was made. Um, yeah. He, God was very, again, that's why it's a special creative act. Uh, this is something that God set his mind to create and form and was very actively involved in the whole thing. So, so far and away opposite from open theism. Yeah. Couldn't mm, actually no. be more opposite. <laughs> yeah. Um, then we come to Eve's uh, supernatural 
origin. The key passage here would be in uh, Genesis 2, 18 to 25. Um, and what we would say with that is that first you have to ask yourself how you're going to approach Genesis 1 through 11. Um, uh, you mean verses 1 through 11. Well, chap- or chapters, the, the whole, yeah, chapters one. Oh, okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Uh, yeah. So, depending on how you're going to approach what's called prehistory, yeah, uh, Ch- Genesis chapters one through eleven. Until you work that out, you really shouldn't be talking too much about Genesis two because um, there's so many different approaches, and we're not going to deal with all those hermeneutical issues. Uh, if you honestly want to, you could hear my sermon series on them. Yeah, but, you did that last year. Um, but we we argue that it's best to approach this simply literal. Uh, that there's no reason for us to see it as something as mythical writing or, or anything else. Um, there's no compelling argument then to interpret it otherwise. Many many scholarly attempts have been made to read it as poetic or allegorically, but they're simply not convincing. Um, they're very technical readings uh, that require so much hermeneutical gymnastics, and again they end up not being able to convince us because they're working very hard at telling you that the text is not saying what the text is saying. Right. It's that simple. Um, very frustrating to it, read. Yeah, yeah. But, but at some point you almost feel um, intimidated because it's so scholarly that mm-hmm. maybe you're just missing something. It's like, no, you're not. Um, they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're very familiar with that whole discussion debate. We're not getting get into it. At some point, maybe we'll talk about it in depth, but not now. Um, We're just going to call it fable um, (laughs) and just deal with it. Um, The conclusion then is that you must see Eve's creation, though, as a supernatural act. Yeah. Yeah, If you're you're not going to approach it as allegory or poetry, but as more literal, you have to conclude it that way. Which is not hard if you've already accepted that the creation of man in general is... But go yeah. ahead. So, yeah. So, the key word in this passage, again, is Genesis 2, 8 through, 18 through 25. And the key word there is bana. Um, and again, from the TWOT, um, it says that the basic meaning here of this word bana is to build or or God as builder. Uh, Yahweh is presented in scripture as the master builder of both the created and the historical order. And the word is used to speak of God's final creative act for man's good when he built the rib, which he had taken from Adam into a woman. That is such, again, an incredibly good word picture being developed there. Yeah, really is. Again, the intimacy, the active involvement. and He's so intentional, so purposeful, and there's design in that, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then three times in verse 23, you have the preposition from... Um, and you see it's, it's used in, in the Hebrew to emphasize the origins of women. And so the idea is that, that she came out from the midst of Adam. And that's the sense of it there. There's a real sense in which women is intimately connected to man, therefore. And, and there appears to be actually an intimation of this in um, actually the sexual union where they're called then one flesh. Right. So Paul then picks that up in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 8 where he says, A for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Now, that might be culturally offensive to some, but it's a biblically sound statement, and it also tells us how Paul approached Genesis. Right. Um, yeah. He, he took, took it very literally. He's not, he's not like, well, in the legendary mythical yeah. writings of <laughs> Marmaduke, they're based upon yeah. the 
Babylonian flood narrative. Yeah, it's like, oh, goodness. <laughs> he just says, yeah, that's what the Bible says. So, and, and from there, he builds theology. He does, yes. So, what's important is that Paul's picking up on the role, the purpose of woman, but it's not out of culture, but creation. And this is something that is so frustrating, again, from a pastoral perspective, is you spend so much time trying to demolish those those cultural influences that people are allowing, sometimes actively, um, rather than just saying, what does the Scripture say? So when we co- it comes to human flourishing, it's a matter of man and woman functioning within their God-given roles. They ought to be seeking to function in the capacity of their original design. That's that easy. Um, when people begin to understand that, though, they'll start to have a sense of true meaning we would argue, in their life. Uh, it's when they seek to usurp the design and the function in a role or a purpose for which they've not been created that things will always end up just going bad. So we, we would say that when we ignore this, it's, it is a lie uh, that we uh, so often believe. But if we can remember the design and therefore the appropriate roles that we've each been given, not only with uh, God's blessing, or will God's blessing be sure, but at a basic functional level, things will just work better. Yeah. Um, I talk about that in my sermons sometimes about it's how God hardwired things. Right, and, right. and we wonder why we're fighting so much against things. Sometimes it's just sin in the world, but other times it's because we're literally fighting against the way God built things and we're trying to make it a different way. So it's never good in the long term for individuals, families, cultures, when they seek to ignore that yeah. original design. And, and the key term there is long term. Yeah. Right. Because in the in the short term, it's like we like this better. <laughs> but when you got the breakdown of roles, you have the breakdown of family. When you have the breakdown of family, you have the breakdown of society. When you got right. the breakdown of society, then you got the breakdown of culture. Mm-hmm. And that's how nations fall apart. And we're seeing that happen right now before very in an exponential level. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's really bad. But again, that's that's long term and we yep. don't we don't believe that. So here's some necessary conclusions related to man then being created. And when we say man, we mean here both men and women, humanity in general. Um, first, because man was created, it means that, therefore that he has no independent existence. Um, two, man is part of the creation. That's very important. Three, man, however, has a unique place in creation. He, again, we just talked about he's got that special... Um, creation by God there, apart from all other aspects of creation. Um, fourth, there's there's brotherhood among men. Um, individual men and women belong to this greater class called humanity. Um, man is not the highest object in the universe. God is. That's very important to understand. There are definite limitations upon man. Um, seven, limitation is not inherently bad. No, it's part of his creation. Yeah. Um, Eight, uh, a proper adjustment in life can be achieved only on the basis of acceptance of one's own finiteness. Um, and, and until we rightly understand what it means to be truly human, we're always going to go wrong in some capacity. Um, and we can only know what it means to be truly human up and against the backdrop of first understanding who God is. Um, and then finally, man is nevertheless something wonderful right? because he's been created by God. Yeah. Now, that then comes to the next point of the unity of the race, um, and we mean here by the human race. 
Um, in Genesis 3.20, it makes it clear that the naming of Eve, which is the mother of all living, is done with the purpose of communicating that all who would follow have a common mother uh, or origin. And we see it. Uh, Paul brings it again up in Acts 17.26. We actually stood on the place he said this. Mm -hmm. That was really cool. Anyhow, um, it says, well, you want to read that one, Lena? Sure. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So the key prepositional phrase is ex anos, uh, out from one. Again, this shows that common origin and therefore simply the unity of the entire human race. Um, There is not a lesser race or a greater race. The whole concept of racism is false in every shape form of and and it, it we, we all know what we always talk about with regard to racism but now we're seeing it reverse mm-hmm. uh, in some really weird ways and the human race um, is is just simply unified in because they come from one's common source right. through Eve mm-hmm. then that brings us to the the whole topic of the image of God or what's called Imago Dei. Um, and obviously when you're talking about humanity or what it means or personhood, things like that, this is a conversation you have to have. Um, and so the vocabulary that's used, we get it straight from Genesis one twenty six through 27. Uh, you see it again in chapter five, verse one, and then chapter nine and verse six. And the term that's used is Im- I- image. Um, and and Paul picks up on this language in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, and the term he'll use is icon, which is um, we 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 would call it an icon. Yeah, it's like where you like the, the camera. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, so th- there's been a lot of ink and a lot of speculation on this concept. What exactly are we talking about when we're talking about the image of God or the Imago Dei? You know, is it speaking of a physical concept? Um, is it a relational category? Is it an emotional category? Is it something spiritual? So on and so forth. The truth is we just don't fully know. And that's where we're going to land ultimately. And don't send us emails telling us otherwise. Right. Well, you can. We'll just ignore them. Yeah. Uh, um, the, truth and love. <laughs> it matters. Um, the main point. <laughs> okay. We'll lovingly ignore it. Okay. Okay. Good. Um, the, but the point to understand when it comes to Imago Dei is that man is unique and in some capacity like God um, and in such a way that man bears some kind of mark or likeness to him that no other aspect of creation bears. In fact, not even the angelic realm. Um, and so anything beyond that is is speculation. And we're going to talk more uh, fully in a minute here on what image of God might mean. But just understand the purpose of it is to make men distinct from the rest of creation. And in that distinction, he is in some capacity like his creator. Keep going because I'm fixing a typo of yours. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. What? Golly. Okay. um, (laughs) Well. Just next point. Go ahead. I'm not, I don't even know where you're at. I'm still likeness. Okay, likeness. There we are. (laughs) Um, All right. Uh, I'm I'm horrible with this word. Hamoi, 
I'm going to insert my lips. Will be is homoiosis. Homoiosis. Anyhow, homoiosis. Thank you. Homoiosis. See, I still can't say it. Say it again. Homoiosis. You sound like um, on Wikipedia. Homoiosis. Dictionary.com. That's kind of like freaky. Anyhow, that. Um, James 3, 9. <laughs> that. <laughs> uh, where it, it says, with it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who are made in the likeness of God. Um, so it's a word likeness there. Um, the two Old Testament terms, image and likeness, are best seen really as synonymous. Yeah, yeah. Um, any effort, again, to try to make a meaningful distinction has never been made. Now, a ton of ink has been spilled on it. Oh, my goodness. I had to read far more than I cared to. But when it comes down to it, there's just no distinction that you can really say. Yeah. Um, now, this concept is also implied again in the Acts 17.28, as well as Ephesians 3.14 and 15. So, again, in the Acts 17.28 one, we'll read that. It's, for in him we live and move and exist as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also uh, are his offspring. So there's this idea where Paul is quoting a secular poet, but he quotes it because of the secular poet's words contain truth, that every person derives their ultimate existence from God, and every human, whether they acknowledge God or not, still bear his likeness. Yes. Um, and then in the Ephesians 3, 14 through 15, it says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Um, and so, what, um, yeah, that's just another passage that shows every person that's lived or every family that's existed ultimately comes from, well, Adam and Eve, but then therefore God. I literally read a commentary, a critical commentary, the other day on this passage, and he said, now you should not make the mistake of assuming this means that humanity has its common roots in God. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I just stared at him All like, right. okay, I'm going to return this commentary. <laughs> you don't even know how to deal with the text. Wow. I, 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 yeah. Yeah. At some point you just right, shake right. your head. Anyhow. Um, one of the, we would also say one of the glorious effects of, of salvation um, is that it actually begins this process of now renewing the image of God in a person. The, God's image has been broken, it's been marred in the fall. And so salvation now is the process of that becoming whole again. Um, you see this, for instance, in Romans eight twenty nine. You want to read that one? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Yeah, and then Ephesians 4. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you, being renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Yeah, so again, in that one, um, the new self, um, it, it's in the likeness of God, you've now, be, that new likeness that's going to be more like God is created in this realm of righteousness and holiness and truth. And I might add that um, it's not actually self. The word is man Yeah. Um, in the Greek. It's, it's put on the new man. Mm -hmm. And he's actually talking to Adam theology there that mm -hmm. the old man yeah, that's a good and, point. And the new man, and that we're to put that on. Yeah. But it, it is, an, I, I, when I first learned this, I was so encouraged of that 
what God has predestined us, that at salvation we've been placed on a pathway that will inexorably lead to us being conformed fully into the image of our, our Lord. Yeah. That's encouraging. It's not that you got to work hard to do it or something else, that, that this is what God has ordained for you. Yeah. And what a work of grace. Now, what is interesting, though, in this Ephesians 4 passage is immediately after that, it says, therefore, yeah. and then he gives a whole bunch of commands, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it's this whole put off, put on concept. Mm-hmm. And the implication to that then is that as we obey or as we're putting off and then putting on, we are beginning to more represent then, therefore, that true image of God. As we disobey, again, we're moving away from that image of God. And, and this is something that's only possible, though, for a person who's truly been saved in that realm of righteousness, as Paul yeah. says, and possesses the Spirit of God. And, and for the genuinely regenerate, it becomes a true motivation because you want to be like your Lord. And you start to recognize that some of these things you're holding to, lying, he says, put off the lies, put on truth, things like that. They, they're not fitting because they don't reflect, they're not reflecting to a world who is your Lord and your Savior. And so it's it's one of the most basic ways where you yeah. live as an alien and a stranger in this world is that you just don't live the same way. Um, it's it's really a very pastoral. It is, yeah. But it's all built on the anthropology. And I guess that's what we're trying to say to the listener is, oh, I don't need to listen. No, you do, because it's it heads somewhere very, very practical to your life. Yeah. Um, so anyhow. Yeah. Um, and then, so that's kind of the middle stage when a person becomes saved, they're, they're not progressively restoring right, their right, image right. as they obey. But then there's that final salvation that is going to result, as you were mentioning, in the full restoration of God's image in a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, I got uh, ahead. Um, that's right. Um, 1 Corinthians fifteen forty nine. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. And then 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. Yeah, and the key thing to notice with these texts is the future tense of these verbs. We shall bear his image of the heavenly in 1 Corinthians 15, and we shall be like him, because at that point we shall see him as he is, 1 John 3, 2. Um, and I think that we should take a lot of hope and encouragement in that. <laughs> um, you know, we often think about the fact that we've been renewed now, um, but that we still live in a broken world. So we're renewed, but we're in a broken world. But the reality is that we ourselves are still broken. Yeah. That that image has not yet been fully restored. And so I would say, you know, coming to Jesus or becoming a convert or a Christian doesn't just immediately make everything right within you. Read Romans 7 if you doubt this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, sin is very much present and that that broken image won't go away until that final resurrection. And and that's actually the point Paul makes in Second uh, Corinthians 5 about, you know, that, that this body right now is described as a tent that's slowly wearing out as opposed to that eternal dwelling uh, that awaits us, the resurrected body that no longer has the taint of the sin, and and we and we lose hope here, and we keep or we keep trying to fix this, um, and it's like no, it's it's something that's part of what makes um, the resurrection our hope. Yes, um, but we keep lying to ourselves that our hope can be found now, and it's like nah, it, it's it's mm-hmm. not. Yeah. So what are what are some views regarding the image? Yeah, and there's not a lack of them. So Burkhoff, 
posits five aspects, <laughs> five, um, to the image of God in a person. You ever use, uh, by the way, Lenski's uh, commentaries on anything? He's a Lutheran, very good one. Uh, Lutheran. Did he do one on First John? I, I think he did one on the whole New Testament. Okay. He was he was the kind. He's kind of like Burkhoff here. If you ever needed to come up with an alternative rendering okay. of some Greek, just go to Lenski, sure. and he he found a problem in every single Greek word. It's just like, oh my goodness, dude. Um, anyhow, Burkhoff five. Uh, there's the spiritual image. Uh, the person is a spiritual being, which means that one is endowed with the qualities of simplicity, spirituality, and immortality. Then there's a rational image. The person is a rational and moral being, which means he has intellectual power, volitional freedom, and natural affections. Uh, affections is like an emotion, but stronger. Um, moral image. The person was created in true knowledge, righteousness, and positive holiness. These qualities are being restored in the believer through the saving work of Christ. Uh, the, well, I'm not sure how to say this. Corporal? One. No. Do you think it's not corporeal? Corporeal? Let me spell I think it. it. I think it's corporeal. We'll, we'll Google it later. Yeah, C-O-R-P-O-R-E-A-L, corporeal. That's how I've always said it in my head. I've never actually <laughs> said it out loud in my life. Um, anyhow, corporeal image. Uh, scripture affirms that the whole person, not just the soul, was created in God's image. Uh, the body functions as a proper organ of the soul. And then you have the functional image, which is dominion of the lower creation, forms part of the essence of the person. So, so, so he, he's arguing all five yeah. of those aspects. See, I, I like that. Yeah, I've never described it as five aspects, but I like the way that he sees it, that here's the whole, the whole is the image of God, and depending on how you turn that whole image, you're looking at a different aspect. Yeah. Um, and all of those, in one way or another, are, are present. Yeah. Um, Carl F.H. Henry states this. He says, the Bible does not define for us the precise content of the original imago, which <laughs> is key. Yeah. And I like that one. Well, I love theology, so I love Burkhoff's, but this one I think is almost almost more faithful because yeah. he doesn't try to go beyond what's there. So, let's give the faith and fable definition of the imago day. We, we don't, don't know. know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Deep. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and again, I mean, we've said it multiple times, but the reason why perhaps Henry's is the best is because all discussions on this um, related to the image of God of man are essentially theological. And that's huge. Yeah, they're not primarily exegetical, uh, meaning just developed straight from what the text is actually saying. And, and I'll, I'll just shove a little point uh, on the side on that is a lot of times people confuse a theological point as if it's a biblical point, and it does not necessarily follow. Um, there's a lot of things that people have just assumed are in the Scripture that are not actually in the Scripture. They're just a theological point. We're going to get into that as we go through our theolo our systematic theology. So, uh, and this is just one of them. It's yeah. he, they're making every statement Burkhoff made was a theological statement, and you'll notice we didn't quote a single scripture because there isn't a scripture that says there is an intellectual aspect to the image image of God. It it 
it's him deriving that theologically, yeah. not exegetically. And that's what's big. Theological opinion. Yeah. Theology. It might be a good one. It, I might even be predisposed to agree with it, but we can't say it's biblical. Right. You, in other words, you can't be dogmatic about it. Right. Yeah. You may be right, but yeah, we'll find out in heaven. Um, now, usually um, the various views, when you're talking about the image of God, fall into three categories, though the names of these categories are going to vary from theology to theology. Um, so, er, Millard Erickson, for instance. Which is a very good, it's an older one, but it's an excellent theology. Yeah, he uses um, three terms. He uses substantive, relational, and then function or functional. Um, so, the substantive. Yeah, uh, go for the. This is based off the meaning of the Hebrew word image. Uh, the basic thought is that there is some essential similarity between man and God, and that's that's simple. Of course, theologians have to make it harder than that. Um, substantive, they come up with. Uh, some would say that it's the it is physical, actually. Others would say it's psychological. Others would say it's spiritual. Uh, there's really no reason to reject that there's some type of physical connection, but if only if you understand that as being not the only aspect. Um, the common view in this position is that man's image is seen in his ability to reason. Though, yeah. that he's just unique above all other creation. By the way, that's part of what's at work when science is working really hard to trying to show that, you know, some dolphin has now learned how to fish with something, you know, and what they're trying to do is say, see, they have these reasoning, and that's because we're all functionally the same. It's like, no, no. When they can build an airplane and fly it, I'll talk to <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And just as a side point, this idea of the image of God being physical, a lot of them are going to get that from Genesis when God is said to be walking in the garden with right. Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, and he's speaking with them, and there's a right. um, rational conversation taking place, but also within the context of some kind of relationship that God doesn't have with like right. a bear, you know? Um, and so the second one then would be relational. Uh, this sees the image as being essentially connected to the relationship or standing that man has with God. Um, it's not so much that personal relationship with God as much as it's the idea that man is responsible and therefore answerable to God and especially as moral creatures. Right. And then the, uh, the final is functional. With this one, the image is seen primarily in what it, a man does. Um, the most common way this is shown is through the many ways man expresses dominion over creation, such as the cultural mandate, people call it. And then there's that final view, which just combines all three. Which is kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Um, usually the, the the first view is, is going to, in this one, is going to be most basic and foundational to the idea of the image of God because it's describing man's ontological reality, that is what he actually is. Um, and then the other two views, therefore, um, will then build off that. Um, you know, so, so what a man does, his functional or relational capacity is going to be a function of what man is, that, that substantive reality. Um, so as intriguing as some of this might be, um, we would still say it is wise to be cautious in trying to be too specific or even yeah. too rigid, um, even, or even too full in your understanding of the image. Um, or the Imago Dei. Um, simply put, God was content to declare it as true, meaning man is created in God's image, 
but without needing to, for some reason, define it. And yes, and um, whatever it is that lasted after the fall, and it's a very important point because our next point, the retention of the image is seen in passages such as Genesis 9-6, where, um, Lynn, you want to read that one? Mm-hmm, yep. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Yeah, and so here, it, instead of trying to define what it is, it just simply says it's of infinite importance. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's so important that if you willfully shed, kill another, uh, it's talking here murder, then your life is forfeit. It, it's talking about the life, uh, death penalty, capital punishment. Um, and some people say, well, we're not allowed to kill. No, actually, you're commanded to kill the one who kills. Right. Uh, which is, people say, well, that makes no sense. It makes complete sense. Somebody took the life of somebody in a, an innocent life. They didn't have the authority to do it, and therefore they forfeit their own life. And why? Because what they shed was not just a person. They shed the uh, somebody that bore the image of God. This gets then into all the debates of infanticide. Um, It gets into the issue of murder. It gets into the issue of um, abortion, all those things. You know, that's what abortion is simply doing. It's just destroying countless image bearers. And so this is actually pre-Mosaic. And so in our view, it's a lasting covenant. We, We would argue that it is right and proper for all cultures to practice death penalty in it, yeah, when when somebody has murdered another, um, many will argue death penalty diminishes the life of person or personhood. But we would actually argue the opposite; yeah. it exalts it because it shows how precious human life is, yeah. and that therefore it's to be protected. And so much so that to extinguish it is to then forfeit your own. Yeah, I mean, you take out an imago day, yours gets to yeah, go away. <laughs> you just leave yeah. the gene pool, right? Uh, no more. And so James three nine through ten uh, talks about the desire to uh, to desire the unjust harm of a person is again to forget the image they bear. Um, can you read that one? Yeah, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Yeah. So this this term or this verse is interesting because. Um, the term here actually for man is, is anthropos and it's speaking of mankind in general. And so the implication then is that every single human being possesses the image of God. And, and of course we've seen that in Genesis, but, it, but here as well. And so the fact that man is still made in the image of God, it, it creates for us this, this actual lifeline, um, spiritually speaking. And so there's still that genuine connection between ourselves and our God and our creator, um, so the, the retention of, of the image of God in humanity, and this one's interesting, also makes the incarnation of Jesus Christ possible. And we don't think about this one, but this is why good uh, theological anthropology is, is helpful. There, there's a strong connection between the Imago Dei and, and what's known as what you were mentioning earlier, Adam theology yeah. from Romans chapter 5. Um, so it's important to understand that there, there are points of continuity between us is, is humans and then also Jesus Christ. So for instance, in John 1, 14, we see that the word becomes flesh. Right. Um, in Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, Christ took on our likeness, not, not, not the likeness of angels. He took on the likeness of man. Um, and of course, that's important for understanding how Christ then is truly able to reconcile 
mankind mm-hmm. back to its creator. And we're going to get into that in Christology and soteriology. Um, but there are real points of continuity between... You mean discontinuity? No, continuity between Christ and man. Oh, I see. Yeah. But there are points of discontinuity. You okay. want to give some of those? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, sorry, I thought you made the transition. Um, so, yeah, there's points of discontinuity. Yeah. Um, because we have Christ is the image. He's the archetype, if you will, uh, the original model. While man has been made according to this image, the ectype, the copy of that model. So, yeah. we, he, yeah. The, the, Theological uh, terms, you got archetypes and ectypes. <laughs> but they're fun to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. In John 10, 31, Jesus says, uh, I and the Father are one. We are not able to declare this our, ourselves. We don't get to say, yeah, me and God are the same. Yeah. And yet, you get into some of those uh, health, wealth, prosperity, name mm-hmm. and climate, and they borderline say mm-hmm. that, and some actually do, so some try. Um, Christ is also the very image of the invisible God, according to Colossians 1, verse 15. Again, very different than man right. who are merely made in his image, which is pretty cool, but it's not the very image of the invisible right. God. And so, in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells, again, Colossians 2, 9. And then Christ is the exact representation, the character, character uh, I'm not going to say it, um, the engraving tool is what of his nature. So, when you look at Christ, you literally see the essence of the nature of God in Christ. Uh, that's Hebrews 1, 3. And so, all of these point to the discontinuity of man and Christ. We're not one and the same as God, like Jesus is, yet we are a unique creation. Yeah. So, bring home. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the creation of man. Um, kind of long, but it's important. Um, it, it is why man is special, why he's unique, why he is higher than every other aspect of creation, including angels, which apparently we're going to judge in some capacity. Um, it is why we ought not to treat our dogs as if they're on par with fellow human beings. They are Preach. not a part of your family, people. They are not. Gosh. <laughs> um, it, it is why also we don't exist for nature, but rather nature exists for us. So kill a dare, deer and eat it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's why you ought not to diminish another human being. Um, it's why you not, I would say not, why you ought not even to think low of yourself um, you are a special creation of God, and it is therefore sin to diminish God's work. Um, it's why, as a redeemed person, you you have very special significance. Um, the image of God, while again not fully restored, is being restored in you. Um, and so, if you're growing in holiness, you're becoming more and more like your Creator every single day. So, plenty for now. Would yeah. you say? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Next time we'll get into the various aspects, which is, I think, a fa- fascinating study, but the aspects of man. Um, so until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation. Let us know what you think about the Imago Day. And don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review, and tell all your friends. Mm-hmm.